Well, 2009 through 2014 were full years for Katie Fletcher, a sister in Christ here at Desert Springs Church and for her husband and her family. Years full of heartache. See, in 2009, Katie and her siblings knew that their sister Elizabeth was having some difficulty. Elizabeth was 29, married, and had five-year-old twin daughters. Health problems and about with depression had the siblings on alert. They planned a family intervention, and they traveled to Phoenix. And when they arrived at the home to meet and to talk with Elizabeth, they found her dead in the garage in her car. They were literally a few hours late. That was 2009. Katie says that she and her husband were new Christians, hardly owned a Bible. In Katie's words, it was an opportunity to rebuild their foundation as a family. And that they did. What they did not know is that they would be undergoing constant foundation work in the years ahead. That was 2009. And in 2010, Katie's mom, Judy, turning just 65 years old, a young grandmother, much loved by their children, was found to have terminal lung cancer and she died that year. Uh, the day after Judy's funeral, Katie got the best news she could, ha- she could receive, especially in these circumstances, and that was that she was pregnant. And the family saw this as a kindness from the Lord to bless them with life in a season of death. Well, seven weeks after they found out they were pregnant, the doctors discovered no heartbeat for the baby, and they lost the baby. That was 2011. Months later, their suitcases lay at the foot of their bed, ready for a trip the next day, a trip to meet their new baby. They were in the adoption process, eager and excited. They'd been preparing for six months. The room was ready, their hearts were ready, their home was ready. When they got a call that the mother had disappeared, gone MIA. And so they experienced the unique loss of a failed adoption. That was 2012. Each year has an event here. And in 2013, Katie got the news that her younger brother, Joey, had died the same way that her sister, Elizabeth, died in the car, alone, by suicide. Now Katie was the youngest among her siblings. That was 2013, and in April of this year, 2014, Katie got a call with news that her older brother, Peter, died, but in a different way. Peter was brilliant. He was hired for an aerospace company in Seattle. Million-dollar bonus. Then a crack addiction, then a gambling addiction, then trouble with the law, then lost the job, then stabbed himself to death from self-hatred, leaving behind a wife and a 12-year-old boy. Well, candidly, on her harder days, Katie says that she has a difficult time feeling that she can access the presence of God. Prayer is hard. And when she does pray, On the harder days, praise and thanksgiving are especially hard. Katie has suffered an extreme kind of loss. Now that's sort of a hard way to start a sermon, isn't it? But that's how the book of Job starts. And the book of Job is our way through this kind of irrational suffering, not the kind that we bring on ourselves through sin or foolishness, and not the kind the scripture speaks of that comes as a discipline for specific sin that we know we're hiding That's God's loving care for us. This is left field suffering, humanly speaking, senseless calamity, the the kind that confounds you, the kind that raises questions in your hearts and in your mind. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 32. The book of Job, chapter 32. This is the third sermon in a five-part series through the book of Job titled, Out of the Whirlwind. We left off last week at the end of a winding series of debates, speeches between Job and his friends. Job's life had come undone. His friends had a very simple view of suffering in God's world. God responds to all sin by bringing immediate, visible, and proportionate suffering to the sinner. Job suffers greatly. Job must have sinned greatly. But Job had a good case for his innocence, and he laid it out for us in a kind of closing argument for a court case and his prayer, if you will, to God at the end of chapter 31. Here's some snippets from his defense. Concerning lust, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? 
Concerning integrity, he said, let me be weighed in a just balance. Considering the vulnerable, concerning the vulnerable, he said, from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as their father. Concerning riches, he said, I have not made gold my trust. Concerning enemies, he said, I have not rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me. And concerning sin, he says, I have not concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding iniquity in my heart. And after having made his case, he cries out, let the Almighty answer me. And Job 31 closes out. The words of Job are ended. He's done talking. He sought an answer, cried out for an answer from God. Job 32 picks up where Job 31 left off. We'll read the whole chapter. So these three men, Job's friends, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barkel, and the Bizite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barkel, the, Biz- the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to for your wise sayings. While you searched out what to say, I gave you my attention. And behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like the new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Well, if we're honest, Job made us uncomfortable last time we were together. We sure felt for the guy. I mean, he's a really good guy. Everything he said about himself was true in chapter 31, by the way. He was God's best human being. When God had to pick one out as an example of righteousness and blamelessness, it was Job. Blameless, God said three times of Job. And he's been through a whole lot. Unknowingly, his life became a battleground for glory between God and Satan. Yes, God is just toying with Satan, but he gave Satan permission to take everything from Job save his life to prove that Job would be faithful to God for God's sake and not for the sake of what Job would get from God. Job did not curse God just as God knew he wouldn't. So he's a good guy and he's been through a lot. And then his three friends show up, close friends enough to travel to be with him. They give him a verbal beating. We considered how false teaching and unwise counsel compound the darkness and loneliness of human suffering and tried to enter into the experience of Job during those dark days. And along the way, Job said many true things and several truly amazing things. Job 19.25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Job 28.28, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And we can certainly understand his desire for an answer. And yet, he was in the same breath at times getting sort of bossy with God. Job 13.15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. All right. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Mm. 
What would we say to Job and how would we say it to Job? Enter Elihu. Enter Elihu. Elihu is totally wound up. Four times in five verses which introduce the guy, we read that he burned with anger. And that's not so subtle an indication of how this man felt after listening to Job and his friends go round and round and round. And it wasn't just because it was protracted, but because of what he heard and didn't hear. We didn't know it, but apparently he's been listening the whole time and others with him. In any case, Job and his three friends dropped the mic and Elihu just picked it up for six chapters of pent-up angry man poetry. And that's what this is. This is six chapters of angry poetry. Now, before we listen to what Elihu has to say, we need to have a little chat about the rumors that are going around about him. The rumors that are going on around about him. In the course of this series, I've heard several people in this church say, what's up with that guy who started talking? You know, after the three friends, that guy. Elihu? Yeah, the, the, the implication is, and we can all understand it, was that really necessary? We have just listened to a lot of speeches, and now we get another. It's not just around our church. It's in the commentaries as well. Some say this was basically a copy and paste job into the manuscript, but those guys don't believe the Bible, so that's always the easy way out of a puzzle for them. If you don't believe the Bible, you can just say, eh, probably inserted. No work to say that. Hard puzzle, eh, it doesn't fit together. But we believe this is God's word. We believe it's God's word. Some say, we believe it's, the, it's God's word, that he's just another miserable counselor, but this time even more miserable. He's a bad guy rubbing salt in the wound after Job has just been bludgeoned by his friends. He says true things like the friends that mixes in poison and bad theology and a bad attitude and that neither Job nor the Lord answer him mean he's just beyond the pale. Some say he's a mixed bag, sort of good, sort of bad. He says some true things, but he also slips into the world's wisdom from time to time. It sounds like the three friends. Or maybe it's just that he says true things. It's just that he doesn't always have a happy heart about it. Doesn't have a happy heart about it. Someone introduces you to me and mentions that I'm angry four times, that'll color the way you, you think about me. You'd think that I probably have an anger problem, right? Four times he's an angry man, an angry young man burning with anger. Or is, or is Elihu right on point? Is he right on point in what he says and how he says it? Have you ever had somebody brief you before introducing you to a friend? Think about that. Perhaps they said, this guy is really full of himself. Everyone loathes him. So when you meet him and he talks a lot and he's loud, you think, I hate this guy. Everyone hates this guy. But if your friend said to the same person, this guy is hilarious, friendliest guy ever, everyone loves him. Then when he's talkative and loud, you think, he thinks I'm cool. He's talking to me. I love this guy. Right? It'll determine how you hear him. Well, which of the rumors are true? Who is the real Elihu? Did Elihu sin in his anger? Is he a good guy or a bad guy or a little bit of both? Well, it seems that the writer thinks we should just know. He never explicitly tells us whether Elihu is right or wrong. It apparently doesn't want us guessing. So we don't want to be guessing all the way through the book, only to conclude one way or the other. Let's see if we can do this at the outset. Whether to loathe him or to love him, whether to ignore him or to heed him, and to read it accordingly. And maybe it'll be helpful to ask the question to get at the answer, what was Elihu angry about? And actually, the writer of the book of Job tells us what he was angry about in his introduction to Elihu. He was angry about two things. First, he was angry with Job for what Job said. Chapter 32, 2, he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And second, he was angry with Job's friends for what they didn't say. Verse 3, he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. And he summarizes very nicely and in a pointed way what both of these in Job 33, verse 8 and following. When he speaks to Job, surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the, the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me and he counts me as his enemy. Behold, Job, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. 
You are not right. I will answer you. God is greater than man. God is greater than man. We will call this the argument from the main beef. This is his main beef, and it is a good argument to take Elihu seriously. I buy it. God's righteousness is something to be serious about. That's what he's upset about. So we're going to go with it. And just to set the record completely straight, here are a few more reasons to take Elihu at face value. First, Elihu's dad. His dad is mentioned. That he gets a genealogy, he's the only one in the book gets a genealogy, doesn't mean he's significant, it just means he's not insignificant. Second, his timing. He starts talking after the three friends have closed their speeches and Job has closed his speeches. He gets an introduction, then he talks all by himself. And then as soon as he's done, the Lord starts talking as though to pick up where he left off. Where he fits in the book makes it look like we're supposed to listen to him. His timing. Third is intensity. If you listen to Elihu talk and then you listen to the Lord talk, it's like they're playing the same notes and working from the same notes. Fourth is claim. The other guys claim to speak for God, but they were clearly in the wrong. False teachers. False prophets. This guy claims to speak for God and he's nailing it in what he says. So he's either a prophet or he's a false prophet. I take him to be a prophet. Fifth is audience. His audience is silent. You know, it may be that he's beyond the pale and so Job doesn't answer, rolls his eyes at him, and so does God. And it seems to me that it may be even a better argument for the fact that he's received. Job answers the other guys. God will pronounce a judgment on the teaching of the three friends. Neither say anything about Elihu. And sixth, Elihu's agenda. Time and again, Elihu sends the, tells us the hazard and the hope of suffering. The hazard of suffering is pride, which leads to death. The hope of suffering is deliverance from pride, which leads to life. In other words, the hazard of suffering is that we would think that we are greater than God. And the hope of suffering is that God would bring us to see that he is greater than us. Suffering is a means to deliverance from the pit. Suffering can prepare us for heaven. This seems like an indispensable lesson for Job and an indispensable lesson for us this morning. Add it all up and it's hard to believe we're supposed to just pass this guy off. So you can read Elihu and hate on him at home at your own risk. We're going to read him favorably this morning. So let me introduce you to my friend Elihu. The Elihu that I know. Elihu is a man deeply committed to the righteousness of God. Elihu is a man that has much to teach us about the hazard and the hope of suffering. And Elihu, for this reason, is a man whose words are absolutely necessary. So what exactly did Elihu say to Job in his anger? What did Elihu say to Job in his anger? Four speeches, four separate speeches, four rebukes, four rebukes. First speech, first rebuke. Chapters 32 through 33. Job, God does speak. Job, God does speak. Job has sinned in his suffering by proudly saying that God is unresponsive to him. Now, in the course of the sermon, we're going to walk from one side of his speeches to the other, roughly. And I'll give you little markers as to where we're at with verse references. Job 33, 13. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? Quoting Job. For God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it. Job says, God is silent. Elihu says, no, he's not. He speaks to us in two ways. Here's the first, verse 15. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, when they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. So God speaks to us, in dreams. But hold on before your brain explodes. The key here is to see God's purpose. Verse 16, he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn aside from his bed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So God is working on, we can say, the conscience of man to keep him from the pit and the sin of pride, of thinking that he's greater than God. The conscience. See, God has built into the mechanism of a human being uh, an operation, a program called the conscience that runs and alarms us when we're violating 
the Lord in sin. Unbelievers have it, believers have it, and we've got it to varying degrees of precision. The more informed your conscience is by the Spirit, the more it will bug you when you do what's wrong. So when you wake up from a bad dream and you're terrified to sin, that's great. Thank God for the conscience. Thank God for the conscience and then go ahead and don't do that sin. Go ahead and turn from your sin. Our reality-informed imaginations go to work at night to scare us at times. And we can give God credit for this. God speaks through our consciences. Second, God also speaks uh, through our pain. Verse 19 and following. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that he cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit. Verse 26, then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what is right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. So God speaks to us through our consciences to steer us from sin and pride and he speaks to us in our pain to remove our pride and to save us from the pit. Why? We've read it twice already. Elihu feels like he needs to say it a third time. I've heard this means he's probably OCD. Verse 29 Here we go again. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring his soul from the pit that he might be lighted with the light of life. So so Elihu wants us and Job to know the purpose that God has in our pain. And so he states it and restates it and restates it. There's hope in suffering because suffering is one way that God saves us. It's not that we earn our salvation through suffering as though you're paying off some kind of debt of sin in the course of your suffering. It's that through suffering, God is refining you and taking your pride away so that you can humble yourself before him to receive his salvation. It's preventative medicine for the soul. So where is God in suffering, in your suffering? He is certainly chipping away at your pride. That's where he is. You know, you may be tempted to be restless until you find some kind of very specific purpose for your suffering. You go through a trial and you're trying to figure out what it is exactly that God is doing. We don't have written revelation from God ever to know precisely what he's doing. So we can settle that, although we can say that he is at work. What we can know from the Bible is that God, through all suffering, is stripping away our pride. No, God did not allow Satan to afflict him as a direct response to his sin, Job that is, but God is through suffering burning away residual pride in Job's heart. Imagine a glass filled with water with dirt at the bottom. You look at the glass and the water looks crystal clear. If you shake the glass, you see the substance of the contents of the glass. And so in suffering, it's a shaking of the glass so we can see what's really inside us. Some of us have more and less dirt at the bottom, but it's all kicked up when we suffer. Job is a godly man, and in the course of his suffering, Job has not cursed God to his face, but Job has been proud in response to his suffering. There's a final and implied way that God speaks to Job. It's through Elihu. It's through Elihu. Verse 31 in chapter 33. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. Elihu invites Job to speak and to respond, but Job will remain silent. He was happy to respond to his three friends. He will not respond to Elihu. He asked God for an answer, and in the voice of this wild little man, he's hearing what he knows to be true, even if it's not the answer that he wanted. In this book, Elihu claims a prophet-like authority. He claims to speak for God, and I think that Job knows it. It's a proud thing for a man to insist that God answer him on his terms. Elihu has corrected Job. Job, God does speak. And he's speaking now through Elihu. That's speech number one and rebuke number one. 
Now speech number two and rebuke number two. Job, God is good. God is good. Chapter 34, Job has sinned in his suffering by calling God to give an account in court for his suffering, calling into question God's justice and goodness. And in this, Job has been proud. In chapter 34, Elihu speaks to what appears to be a crowd and articulates an important agenda. He says in verse 2, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. So you can taste food and know if it's good or not. Let's taste Job's words and see what we think. So he restates Job's claim. Job 34, 5. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. He has said it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. And sadly, Job has said such things. Job 13, 18. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be right. And again, even in his best moments. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. He's not conflicted, he's committed to God giving an answer. Job has said, I am a just and right man and I am being treated with injustice by God. And Elihu says, this puts Job in line with scoffers and the wicked. You see, just because Job rejected the accusation of guilt by his friends doesn't mean Job actually doesn't share or it doesn't actually mean he doesn't, hasn't adopted their theology deep down. Just because he's on the right side of some of their accusations doesn't mean he hasn't actually swallowed their theology. And in the pressure cooker of suffering, including these false accusations, Job is finding out what he really believes. Here's another way to put it. Job's friends say, you are reaping what you sow. Job is saying, I'm innocent. I'm supposed to reap what I sow. God got it wrong. You hear that? It's the same theology at heart. The dispute was over whether Job is innocent or guilty, not over whether God can do as he pleases. Just because Job's friends were wrong doesn't mean that Job is right. And just because Job suffers doesn't mean that Job has a license to say whatever he wants about God. It doesn't mean we should not lament our sadness or be sad or ask questions or cry Elihu is not angry because Job was grieved deeply, but because he questioned God's goodness specifically. It just means that we should, ne- we should be ever vigilant to evaluate our thoughts and our words and be ready to repent even in the midst of great suffering for the thoughts we think and the things that we say. Katie, whose story I shared with you, gave me permission to read part of an email she sent to friends when she found out they lost their baby. Here's what Uh, Here's a, a part of the email. In all honesty, my first reaction was absolute anger with God. How could he do this to me? I didn't ask for this baby. I didn't plan for this baby, but he gave this baby to me just to take it away? We had begun to imagine the future of this baby and how he or she would fit into our family. The girls have been beside themselves with joy and anticipation. We were already thinking of names and wondering if it would be a boy or a girl. I have some maternity clothes in my closet and I had already put away the clothes I knew I wouldn't be fitting into for a long time. I had imagined the birth and who would be there with me, the girls were going to be there. Jamie and I had just talked today about how the difference in age between she and the new baby is the same as the difference in age between me and Auntie Kim. We have faced so much loss in the last two years. In the last month, all of us, our children included, why? It just seems cruel. I was not angry with God when my sister died. I was not angry with God when my mother died. I was not angry with God when the little boy we believed we were going to adopt into our family was given to a different family. That was a previous adoption. But this was too much. It has been the anticipation of new life, first our impending adoption, then this baby as well, which has helped to carry me through the loss of my mother. And now, all in the same week, both seem to have been taken from us. And you see, what what Katie needs in that moment is the doctrine of God and a vision of God as he is. 
And this is where Elihu turns in speaking to Job. He preaches that God is good whether we perceive it or not. Job 34.10, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. God is God and we are not God. 13 and following, who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. He's God. He can suck the breath out of every living thing in the world in a moment. Now Elihu talks directly to Job, verse 16. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Do you know who you're dealing with, Job? The just judge of the universe? God's justice cannot be manipulated by the most powerful or the least powerful. Verse 18. He says to the king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man. He shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. His justice is certain. Verse 20. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. And his justice is by perfect, precise intelligence. Verse 21, for his eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all his steps. His justice is public. Verse 26, he strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see. And it's in his own time. Verse 29, when he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man? When God appears to do nothing about sin, It is not the case that God will do nothing about sin. And at the climactic midpoint of his speech, he calls Job to repent in verse 33. For you must choose Job and not I. You're called Job. God's righteousness or yours. It's almost as if he gives Job the opportunity to respond, but nothing. Job is quiet. Verse 36, would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like a wicked man for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multitudes his wor- multiplies his words against God. And you can see why some wouldn't like Elihu. He sounds like a jerk. But he's got serious words for a different reason than the three friends had serious words. The three friends were seriously wrong. Elihu is seriously right. Righteous anger. And it's a sign of just how serious our response in suffering is. You see, the greatest tragedy in suffering is not that we would suffer loss, but that we might turn from God. The greatest tragedy in any of the suffering you've ever experienced is not that you would suffer loss. It's that you might turn from God. Elihu's words are harsh, but they're true. Suffering can turn us evil Job has to choose, will he be humble or will he, and, or will he justify himself? And by the way, we should be careful, we should be careful about thoughtless imitation of Elihu here. The Bible gives us more in terms of instruction about how to respond to those who are suffering. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There are different prescriptions for different spiritual diseases and those who are unruly need to be rebuked. But those who are weak do not need a rebuke and those who need encouragement do not need a rebuke. There's plenty of comfort and helpful and gentle words in the New Testament to suffering Christians, not in the form of rebuke. And that's because not all grieving loss need it. But right here, Job does. And Elihu, being a prophet, speaking for God, has perfect knowledge of what he needs to hear. Be warned that the friends also thought they knew exactly what Job needed to hear and had a harsh tone, precisely the wrong advice, and it had the effect of crushing him and driving him further into the dark. Get the, prescription, get the diagnosis wrong, get the prescription wrong, and do damage. Elihu's a prophet. And yet, there is a place for a direct word of warning to somebody who is digging in in false beliefs and words about the character of God. For their own sake, it is appropriate at the right time to tell somebody, do not harden your heart, that is not true. 
Thankfully, Katie and her email was not finished. I'll keep reading for you from her email. She writes, at this point, there has been some time to process a bit, and our perspective is more clear. We still believe with all our hearts that God is in control and that there is a purpose, even if we cannot see it right now. We still believe that it is only God who can carry us through. And while we don't want to be unrealistic, we also believe that God is capable of anything and everything. You see, at the time of her email, they were only 99% sure. The doctor said 99.9% sure that the baby was in fact dead. So she would return the next week and they would confirm. She continues asking for prayer. So I wanted to ask that you would pray with us throughout this upcoming week. Pray that God would perform a miracle. That he would make this baby strong and healthy. And that when we go back in for another sonogram, that we would see a steadily beating heart that this baby would hang in there and be used to inspire awe in everyone who witnesses. Ultimately, we know that we accept God's will for us in this, whatever the outcome. But for tonight, this little unborn human being is still in my belly, still making me get up a dozen times at night, still making me crave shrimp and vanilla pudding and the smell of eucalyptus, still making me feel nauseous and exhausted most of the time, and I choose to hang on to that and not give up on him or her. Not until I know for sure. Tonight I am still pregnant and I choose to hope instead of grief. Please share in that with us. Well, a week later, and a trip to the doctor and no beating heart. They grieved and they trusted the Lord. Suffering can take us to the edge. Job's three friends were focused on Job's sins that brought about his suffering and they were wrong. Elihu is focused on Job's sin in response to his suffering. And Elihu is precisely right. It's a proud thing for any of us to say to God, prove you are good. Elihu has corrected Job. Job, God does speak. Job, God is good. And now in speech three, Job, God is worth it. God is worth it. Chapter 35 Job has sinned in his suffering by proudly saying that God is not worth obeying. Verse 2. Do you think this is this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God? That you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? In other words, if I obey, what do I get? I need to know that. Many who hold the Bible think this is a fine question. As we've seen the prosperity gospel preacher promises health and wealth in exchange for devotion to God and giving. The therapeutic gospel preacher preaches a wonderful plan for our lives if we only surrender our lives to God. Elihu thinks it's an inappropriate question since we have no negotiating power with God that he would owe us anything and under any circumstances whatsoever. Verse 6 of chapter 35. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? What do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? God made the world. He can take your breath. What does being righteous add to him? What does sinning take away from him? He's not saying that obedience is irrelevant. He's just saying that in as much as God is God, he doesn't need us. There's an appoint system here. There's no negotiating with God. Katie did find herself doing this as she shared with me on the phone. Related to one of Katie's losses, she said, I asked, why would God deny me this? Why would he say no? And if no, couldn't it have been a quick no instead of a long no? My anger developed over these questions. Finally, I got to a place where I realized, I think that I know better than God. No, he has his reasons. Often when imparting parental wisdom to my children, she says, I hear the things I know I'm supposed to hear. I hear the teens substituting their judgment for mine, thinking they know better. I've been 14 and they've never been 40. They may not understand or agree, but it's not for them to decide. It's for them to obey and respect their parents. I've been a teenager with God at times, thinking that I knew better than him. And this is what suffering has kicked up and shown and taught Katie. What a reward. Why should I obey is an inappropriate question because there's no negotiating with God. And it's also an inappropriate question because he doesn't owe us an answer. He says people cry out all over the world but not to God. Verse 12, they cry out but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. 
how much less than when you say you do not see him? So if people all over the world in suffering cry out, but not to God and God does not answer, why would he answer Job when Job cries out to him but shakes his fist? It's a proud thing for a man to say to God that he isn't worth obeying. Elihu has corrected Job. God, Job, God does speak. He is good. He is worth it. And now speech four and rebuke number four. Job, God is unfathomably great. God is unfathomably great. Chapters 36 and 37. Job is sinned in his suffering by proudly ignoring the sheer greatness of God. And Elihu tells us why he speaks in verse 2. Bear with me a little and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. This is his agenda, the righteousness of God. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. You can see why people don't like Elihu, see it? But you see, he's a prophet. And if he's a prophet, he's saying, I know what I'm talking about, in other words. Listen to every word, Job. He speaks on God's behalf and to exalt his righteousness. He says to Job, God is great. Just look at his dealings with people. Verse 5, behold, God is mighty and he does not despise any. He is mighty in strength and understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but he gives afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. Job has not been fair in his evaluation that God does not punish the wicked and reward the righteous. But he has not taken into consideration God's timing. And there's some hope in suffering. Verse 15, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. Through their adversity, he opens their ears. He humbles them to hear him. And here's a hazard warning in verse 18. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing. Take care and do not turn to iniquity. Job, in your suffering, do not turn to iniquity. Do not turn to scoffing. And this is the danger of suffering. That we would wallow in self-pity and false thoughts and use our suffering as a license for whatever we may want to think about ourselves and others and about God. Be very careful, very careful to guard your heart in suffering. Of course, Job has scoffed. Suffering can harden us in our pride or it can root out our pride. Job, God is great. Look at his dealings with people. And Job, God is great. Look at his governance of the universe. Look at how he governs the universe. God sends Elihu now an amazing sermon prop called a storm. Perfect sermon illustration to end the sermon. We can, get, we can begin to imagine now a gathering storm, the sky changing color, the clouds heavy, as Elihu reflects on every form that H2O can take. God is wonderful. Let's talk about water for a minute. Let's talk about water. Saw a drone video in the last few weeks of a little drone footage from inside the fireworks. Who saw that? I'm on the internet too much. Um, <laughs> It's really awesome. Like you're uh, this little drones flying around and there's stuff exploding around it and you're just, uh, you suppose it could have gotten taken down. Well, this is like a drone video through a storm following water around as it changes and takes form. He says in verse two, bear with me a little and I will show you for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar. Sorry. Chapter 36, 26. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years are unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, with this, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning around him and covers the roots of the sea. Millions of pounds of water fall from the sky in an hour to water a square mile. Millions of pounds of water fall from the sky in a rainstorm. And not like a bucket dumping it out, but in the form of small drops that anyone can take. How does it get up there? Evaporation. 
This is amazing, folks. This is a wonder of God, how he has ordered his world so that a man in his field may grow food and feed his family, all while God does his thing in the sky. What does God do with storms? Verse 31, for by these he judges peoples, he gives food in abundance. Judges and gives food. Where is God in a storm? He's in the storm. Where is he in your storm? He's in your storm. You can even hear his voice. The animals take shelter. And Elihu worships God out loud before Job, chapter 37. And also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind. By the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter as lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the inhabitable world. And I can't help but think that as Job's hearing about wind and storms, that he thinks about the day when his children were crushed in a home under the wind of a storm. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We've got the backstory. Satan was out to kill. Job was vind- God was vindicating his name. And yet God is at the top of the order of the universe. His purpose in guiding the clouds to and fro, verse 13, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. He corrects, he feeds the ground, and he loves us when it rains. Job, with his ears ringing with the voice of God and his clothes wet with the words of Elihu, sits there silent. And he is silent because he is guilty as charged. He had plenty to say to the three friends who accused him of suffering, but he has nothing to say when accused of sinning in his suffering. And so many of us this morning are realizing that we are guilty as well. A gal between services as I went to get coffee said, I feel like I have a permanent bruise on my chest. That's what Job is doing to her. I like that, a permanent bruise. Maybe you feel like you have a permanent bruise on your chest as well. Maybe God's word is doing to that, that to you. Elihu's words have silenced us. We have said things in our suffering which we should not have said. We sure have been provoked by unhelpful words. But it remains true we have said far worse than Job with far less suffering and far less righteousness than Job. But thankfully, as we'll see next week, that this book of Job was not written to make us perfect or merely to tell us that we aren't, but for our repentance, but for our repentance. And at the cross, there is forgiveness for our pride before God. If we humble ourselves and say, God, you are right and I am wrong. And this forgiveness comes to us through one who had every reason to cry injustice. A righteous man condemned a criminal, Jesus Christ, God's son, who was silent. And not because he was guilty like Job or you or me, but because he was dying for the guilty like Job or you or me. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers is silence. So he opened not his mouth. If Job is a crash test for human beings. The strongest representative from our race. While not cursing God. He has nonetheless sinned against God in his suffering. So if you're sitting here feeling guilty, you're in decent company. You're in decent company. And of course, most of us are pretty bad here. Most of us are more like Adam than Job was. It was in paradise that Adam questioned God's goodness and pride for for withholding the taste of fruit from a single tree. In paradise, Adam was suffering 
I suppose he might have said, under the unjust restriction of a stingy God. The devil is proud and we are with him. But Jesus saves the proud people who humble themselves. And this is the wisdom of the cross. It is the wisdom of the cross that God saves those who have nothing to be proud about in themselves. And so Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians to boast only in the Lord. So my friends who are suffering this morning, have you been suffering in your suffering, accusing God of wrong? Are you right now accusing God of wrong? Are you in the hazard zone? Satan's agenda is the growth of your pride in these moments. God's agenda is your purification from pride and salvation through it. Humble yourself before God's mighty hand. And so the next time it rains here and we have a storm, which isn't very often, so look out for it. Go outside and remember these last words in Elihu's speech. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds? The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Can you, like him, spread out the skies? God is clothed in awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness, he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have been humbled by this word, for we know that Job in all of his righteousness put under this pressure sinned against you. And he was not given sympathy when he called into question your righteousness because you are God and you are greater than man. And we've no place to accuse you of wrong. So shut our mouths where we have done that. And Father, we're grateful for the message of Job which is not that of condemnation, but of hope in suffering, that you have purposes for us. There is no pointless suffering. All suffering is purposeful to root out pride. Do that in us and in our church, that we may humbly reflect the glory of your son's humble death. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.